the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Malcolm McDonald and I'm a General Agricultural Consultant based out of our Inverness office. In this podcast today, I'm joined by Lorna McPherson from our livestock team and Donald Barry, who is the farm manager at Glensock. Glensock is a research farm which is run by the Hutton Institute. Um, so this podcast is about generally about forage and grass and making, making silage. Um, do you want to just kick us off, Donald, by giving us a bit of background to Glensock and what your what your job role entails and what you do at the farm? So Glensock is a hill farm of a thousand hectares, and it has served as a research station for several different organisations since the late 1940s. Um, so I work for the James Hutton Institute, and the institute uses Glensock as a research platform in its um, land use work. My day job is to manage Glensock as a livestock holding. Um, we have uh, 50 suckler cows, um, but our principal enterprise would be sheep. So we've got 400 low ground ewes, um, 350 blackface ewes on the hill. And in addition, we've got 100 red deer hinds, which we manage commercially. Okay. Okay. And um when you're lambing and calving, what's the kind of the setup and then the market for your lambs and calves as well? Okay, so we lamb our crossbred ewes at the beginning of April and we aim to sell those lambs off grass in August and September. We lamb our blackface ewes mid-April to early May. Um, the majority of those lambs are sold as stores in late September. Um, less, of course, what we retain on farm is breeding, so the blackface flock is closed. Um, suckler cows are calving in, mainly in March and early April. Those calves are sold as stores in late October, early November. And the deer calve in May and early June, and those calves are weaned in late September, housed and then either sold during that winter or more commonly they will be retained over the winter and finished on grass in the following season. Okay, okay. When did you move into the deer? It's a slightly novel so, livestock enterprise these days. Well, Glensock was one of the pioneer deer farms and that happened around 1970. So All right, okay. The, okay. We, we've been at it for 50 years now. And do you want to tell us a bit about the location of the farm and the kind of topography and the, how, kind of, how high you are as well? Give us an idea of where exactly it sits. So Glensock's located on the hill foot on the Cairn Mount overlooking the Howe of the Merns. Um, we're not a particularly high farm, so altitude ranges from 160 to 400 metres. Um, we sit behind Strathfinella Hill, so we're quite dark in the wintertime. But generally speaking, Glensock is a mainly south-facing, mainly free-draining farm, and it's dominated by dry heath, which is Heather Hill to, to you and I. Um, so it's 1,000 hectares or roughly 800 hectares of um, heather dry heath. Um, we've got say approximately 100 hectares of improved grassland, um, much of which was reseeded about 50 years ago and hasn't been touched since. And um, within that 100 hectares, we have less than 50 hectares of intensively managed grass, which we're now um, 
rotationally grazing, and it's from that intensively managed grass that we also make our winter fodder, um, principally silage, but also haylage. So you mentioned the silage and the haylage there, Donald, but to kind of to start us off with your grassland management, will we take it kind of back to the start? And uh, do you want to tell us about your reseeding policy and your kind of um, soil management before we get into conserving forage? Okay, so over the 20 years that I've been here, we have really moved away from regular reseeding, but we are very focused nevertheless on soil health. And part of that focus is to do an annual soil test on those fields that are intensively managed. Um, the soil test tells us the pH, which we can correct using lime if we need to, and also the P and K status, which we can correct using top dressings of, for example, GAFSA grade fertilizer if we need to. And I say if we need to. So because we're principally a grazing unit, um, we often find that we don't need to add inputs that are purchased from out with the farm. Um, we use very little nitrogen fertilizer and therefore the, the, there is no real stripping out of um, pH. So the pH tends to fall over time, but only very slowly. So typically we might spread only 20 tons of lime in a season and targeting that to the fields that are indicated in the soil test. The other input that we use is farmyard manure, which comes from our housed winter livestock, and that seems to be quite enough to put the to correct the offtake of P and K that comes from the cutting of silage. And obviously, the grazing of animals tends to recycle P and K in the system anyway. I, I take it you're you're buying in buying in straw as well, so that'll be your your FIM will be a kind of an in, that'll, that's one input which is kind of bought in, of course. Um, yes, so be that, that, that's absolutely that. right. So we sit on the edge of the house of the Merns, which grows a lot of cereals, so straw is readily available. And yes, we do buy it. And all our house livestock is headed on straw. Yeah, and of course, if you're if, you know not using too much nitrogen fertilizer, the main drop in your pH will just be due to rainfall, I suppose. Slowly, that, slowly correct. washing it. Yes, like, yeah. I, yeah. we're supposed to be in a low rainfall district, although you wouldn't believe it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, not many places feel like that these days, or by this spring anyway. Um, well, saying it has been dry, but now it's been too wet, so it's a yeah. famine or flood. But anyway, um. So do, do you have a, how often are you receding then? Is it, is it just asking when the grass needs it, which is how long are you getting your grass to last, I suppose is what I'm kind of asking. Well, some of the swords have, some of the swords were sown before I came to Glensoch in 2001 and are fields that I have never chosen to reseed. I should say fields that I have chosen not to reseed because they have names like the hard park. So <laughs> I, I've maintained those swords through, I hope, careful management and weed control. Yeah. Um, if I can see a continuing dominance of sown species, and one of those important species is clover, then I'm happy. And I think, why would I take that field out of production, expose it to the elements? Um, and now we're aware that we would risk losing quite a lot of carbon from the soil, but also, significantly increase the risk of soil erosion and those summer rainfall events are to be feared. So if we have 80 millimetres of rain in an afternoon, then that can do catastrophic damage. Um, but the other thing that changed in our management was that we started to rotationally graze our livestock. So for example, 
an eight hectare field has been subdivided into three and a six hectare field has been subdivided into two. So these larger fields now give us a multitude of smaller paddocks and we graze our livestock from paddock to paddock, typically resting our grass for um, 18 to 21 days. That short window actually gives us the opportunity to apply light dressings of farmyard manure. So the farmyard manure tends to be trickled in. A little bit of nitrogen comes from that too. And I'm very much happier with the way we manage our grass and, the, and have noticed an increase in output from grazed grass. And therefore that has shifted my attention away from reseeding. Um, if the sward is looking in poor shape, then it will be for a variety of reasons mainly related to poor management. So by improving the management, we tend to see our swords looking better. Okay, thanks, Adonald. It's really interesting here about the rotational grazing. Um, Lorna, do you want to tell us a bit more about rotational grazing and you know why you think farmers should, should look at it and what the basic principles are? Yeah, absolutely. And Donald has already touched uh, you know, on just on some of the benefits and, and the principles of it but it basically works on the principle of graze and rest. So we're basically looking for our stock to graze an area for a certain, amount in, a certain amount of time before we move them on to fresh grass. So the idea is that we've got multiple areas or paddocks and that every time we move stock into a different paddock, they're getting grass, which is at the right stage of growth and of the highest nutritional quality. So we're aiming to get the grass at the most where, when it's the most nutritious in front of the stock all the time. Um, the rest period um, for each paddock is also going to vary, uh, as Donald said, with um, the, the rate of grass growth, which will depend on the time of season and the weather conditions. But uh, early in the spring, it could be as short as 15 days. Um, and by the time you get to September, it could be as long as 30 days. To start rotational grazing, it does require a bit of investment in both time and infrastructure. So it might require the setup of either permanent or some temporary fencing and just making sure that all the paddocks have access to water. For really intense sort of rotational grazing management, uh, some farmers are actually measuring their uh, grazing covers or grass covers in each field with a plate meter and then using grass management software such as AgriNet so they can basically track how much grass cover they've got in each field so they can build up a picture of how much grass is available on the farm and how much they need for the stock and it will help highlight um, whether there's excesses or deficiencies of grass at certain times of year and you know you can try and manage that accordingly um, and it's also going to take a bit of time as well just for for moving fences and moving stock um, but yeah there's a lot of benefits with the system and it's really just based on knowing, um, you know, a, a few simple calculations. So you need to know basically how much grass is available for grazing. Uh, and we talk about grass covers in kilos of dry matter per hectare. So your available grass for grazing is your pre-grazing measurement minus your post-grazing target uh, multiplied by your field size in hectares. You also need to know how much grass your stock are going to be eating. So that's usually worked out on um, a percentage of body weight. So for example, in terms of dry matter intake, a suckler cow will eat around about two and a half percent of her body weight and ewes with lambs will eat around about three percent of their body weight in terms of grass dry matter. 
And then from that information, you can calculate how long your field or paddock will last. So it's basically the amount of grass you've got available for grazing divided by the daily requirement of your group of animals. So yeah, we've touched on some of the benefits of rotational grazing already, and it's estimated that compared to set stocking, you can grow about an extra 20% more grass in a rotational grazing system. It can be used to extend the grazing period. Um, and also because we're growing more grass, we can carry more stock, so we can increase our stocking rates. Um, because we're also looking at growing more grass, it might mean a saving in fertilizer. But also, if we're managing to keep grass at the right quality in front of the stock all the time, it could mean a reduction in supplementary feeding, so slightly lower input costs. Um, and again, with trying to improve the quality of the grass in front of the stock, we're maybe looking at better growth rates or better milk production in our breeding stock. So we should see improvements in livestock productivity as well. I think one of the other benefits as well um, is in terms of the resilience of that grassland. So in periods of bad weather, if it's really, really wet, the grass is not being continuously poached like it is in a set stocking system. So it just means the grass is probably more resilient and able to cope with, with poorer weather conditions as well. So, yeah, it's, it's hopefully going to be lasting longer, like Donald said. Just the, when I speak to farmers, some of them are maybe slightly in, intimidated by the thought of the spending on infrastructure when it comes to um, rotational grazing. Did, did you find that a big a big output, Donald, or, have you, or did you did you get into it gradually? Did you start to split fields and split them more? Is yeah. that kind of how you worked uh, into it? Absolutely right. We got into it gradually. So we we had some fields that were too big to manage. So we said, let's just divide this field in half. That gives us at least some control. So then half the field is being grazed and half is being rested. Once you've divided a few fields into two, then or perhaps one or two bigger fields into three, you have a, a multitude of paddocks, and then it's possible to move animals in larger mobs from field to field to field. Yeah. Um, so no farmer should be intimidated, provided he or she has got good boundary fences. It really does help, though, if you already have electric top wires, because then you can just hook up the subdividing fences and two wires on poly posts is good enough to keep um, sheep or cattle where they're meant to be. Even one wire for cattle, if necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is um, I, I, a good, a good electrified top wire, kind of all round, is is one thing I have heard is quite a, a very useful step when you're uh, getting into. Um, it's a great starting point. Yeah, yeah. Because I think maybe if you're if you haven't done that and you're thinking about going into rotational grazing, you can be a bit kind of uh, and and your previous experience with electric fencing is you know battery units here, there, and everywhere. It can be a bit of a thought to think of having uh, replacing yeah. batteries all the time, Mike. Um, yeah. So you've seen those benefits, Donald, as in less fertilizer use and and more more grass. Yes, although. Actually, our fertilizer use has remained roughly the same because we are tending to get more benefit from our grass and therefore we're working it harder, and particularly in the spring. So previously, we would have suckler cows coming out of sheds, off their winter diet, and out onto fairly poor secondary pastures or rough grazing. So those animals would be taking a real hit and we'd be expecting them to get back in calf. So with our paddock system and in a growthy season, we've 
had the ability to bring cows into the rotational grazing system with their bulls, and that has given us quite a, a, an uplift in terms of getting those cows in calf quickly. Um, in very growthy seasons, we've really needed the cows because the grass has tended to get away. Yeah, that, that, I think that can be a challenge with sheep. If, if the rotation gets ahead of them, it might end up, you know, too long for the sheep to effectively use it, but maybe not be long enough to be worth cutting for silage. Um, do, do you get that problem, Donald? We, yes. So I think in the spring of 2019, we had grass getting away and we weren't grazing it hard enough. So we didn't have big enough mobs of ewes and lambs um, and the cows weren't even keeping up. Um, so options then are to um, close up certain paddocks and cut them and bale them. And you know, typically at Glensoch, we would do our cutting in late June or even early July. But um, having some paddocks ready to cut and bale in early to mid-June has also changed the dynamic of our system. And once the paddock is cleared in mid-June, the, the problem of it getting away has really disappeared for the entire season because it'll take a few weeks to recover from being cut by the time it recovers we're into say mid to late july and the whole system has slowed down by that stage yeah yeah it's not going to head or not going to rush to head after that is Correct. it it's just going to be a bit more a bit more static i suppose and usable yeah yeah okay okay and so when did you start implementing rotational grazing donald a 2016 i think and okay. I, I attended a group of meetings that were run by QMS and picked up the, some of the knowledge. And they also ran a very good workshop on electric fencing. And we already had a bit of knowledge of electric fencing and had started to put in those electric top wires that I mentioned. So mm. extending the electric fencing system was very easy. Yeah, yeah. Was that QMS grazing groups, I think they were yes, called? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, there are good meetings. I, I went to a few as well. There are uh, some great speakers definitely definitely okay we, we've talked about the benefits of rotational grazing and how that can extend the grazing season which we found at Glensoch. but there is no getting away from the fact that we still have to manage a winter that for suckler cows is going to last for about five months and therefore we have no option but to make a certain quantity of silage and haylage every year so the rotational grazing system has given us a bit of flexibility in that we can now cut paddocks slightly earlier than we used to. So, for example, if I only want to make 100 bales of haylage, um, I could probably get that from two of my subdivided fields, or, or I should say two subdivisions. Um, and if paddocks are getting away from me and getting, a, or I should say, getting away from the livestock, in late May, then I take the decision to close those off and I cut them and that's part of my winter forage secured. Okay, so so the rotational grazing is, is integrating well with the kind of the winter forage making as well, yeah, yeah. Yes, but the other inescapable fact is that I still have to make 450 tonnes of silage and I, I can't get that from just one or two paddocks. So. There are two fields that are the the mainstays of our silage making operation and in those fields we actually remove the subdividing fences when we close them up in mid-May and 
the subdividing fences are then put back later in the season. Um, yeah, so you mentioned the haylage there as well. So are you making haylage and pit silage at Glensaw? That's correct. Yeah, yeah so the, yeah. Pit, the pit silage is the mainstay of my winter feeding operation. It's fed to crossbred ewes, suckler cows, um, weaned calves, both bovine and deer. Uh-huh. Whereas the haylage is used in sheds where I can't get access with the feed wagon and also for winter feeding of blackface use on the hill should that be necessary. Okay, okay. So you're really using the haylage uh, as a kind of logistically you kind of need something a bit more flexible than, than That's the That's absolutely yeah. right. I describe it as a convenience food. It's also yeah. highly palatable, so livestock likes it. Yeah, ready meals for cows. That's what yes. he just. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, you mentioned you're cutting some haylage earlier, but where, when do you usually cut your pit silage, your main crop? So the pit silage is usually cut in the last week in June. That would be my target. Um, yeah. We don't close up fields typically until mid-May because until that point in the season, they're grazed by ewes and lambs. Yeah. It's, it's not until late May here that the, the real big growth comes. And mm-hmm. until that point in the season, season we're just holding our own. Yeah, yeah, okay. I right, just spreading the ewes out and letting them, you know, get what they can get. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. And how long? How long do you wilt that silage for once you cut it? In good conditions, twenty-four hours. So, my, I have a very standard recipe, as I call it, and that would be to have the silage crop cut in the afternoon when the grass sugars are up, to wilt it during that afternoon and into the morning of the following day, and then from mid-morning on day two, we'll start chopping. Okay. Okay on day two we will cut whatever is left to cut and the job will either wrap up late on day two or early on day three and there is a need therefore to manage the silage contractor because they want to come in knock the crop down chop it pit it up and be gone to their next job so you, you can gauge that i'm actually dragging the job out slightly in very good conditions, we can have the job finished late on day two, and that's ideal. But um, I am quite particular about the dry matter of the silage, and it, it, it needs to be above a target of about 28% to avoid any effluent seepage from the pit. Effluent is simply a, a mixture of sugars and proteins that's going, I was about to say, down the drain. Of course, it doesn't go down the drain. It gets collected. and. Um, spread back in the fields, but it's nevertheless a waste. So if those sugars and proteins can stay in the crop and in the pit, then I'm, that, that's where I want them. Yeah, that's a nutritional loss, definitely, definitely. Uh, and you're not, are you turning or tedding it or anything after? Yes, after we morning? are. So, yeah. so when we cut the silage in the afternoon on day one, then we'll usually come in right away with the tedder and throw the bouts out. We're trying to get as much of the moisture out of that crop as we can in as short a time as possible. And in good conditions, the silage will all be teddied once. Um, in slow conditions, sometimes twice, but that's to be avoided. And we, part of the strategy is that we look for a weather window that is going to give us good conditions. And yeah, with the cooperation of the contractor, we quite often get that right. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I suppose you need the contractor with them, um, you know, big big machines to come in and do it quick when you've got the weather window. If you if you were doing it in house, you're well, you'd, you'd, I'm sure you'd still get there, but it's a lot more tying, I suppose, because you'd be uh, stretching a job out for. We haven't days. done the job entirely in house for about sixteen years. The last yeah. time we did it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> okay. So so finding a contractor who can put up with our fussiness has been a key to success. Yeah. 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 No, I can appreciate that. Um, and do you use any, any additives on your silage when you're when you're? Yeah. So when the silage is chopped, it's treated with a product called Safe Sile, which is a food grade preservative. That preservative kills some of the yeasts and fungi that are naturally present on the grass, mm-hmm. but it leaves some of the beneficial bacteria intact, and okay. it, it therefore helps the fermentation to get off on the right track. But because it's a preservative, it also inhibits any um, losses that occur after the silage pit has been opened. So untreated silage will sometimes heat. And if you put a temperature probe into the cut face of the silage pit, that would be very noticeable. Um, We tend not to get that problem at Glansoch, provided the additive goes on at the right rate, um, which is three litres per fresh weight tonne, don't quote me on that, but it's quite a lot. So um, forager drivers sometimes say, well, why are you putting all that on? Because they're used to applying additives at much lower volumes. So I've had to educate some of the forager drivers, and I also have to be out there in the field to ensure that the right amount of stuff is going on. So I estimate the, the tonnage that's going to come off each field, and I know roughly how much of this preservative should be used by a certain point in the job and therefore i i'm out there making the, the operator's life a bit difficult sometimes <laughs> saying, you're not applying this at a high enough rate yeah 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 yeah. okay okay um so on the additives lorna um there is you know farmers ask about them and there's a lot of additives around what, what's your advice on additives is it is it something which you think people should be looking at or is it just uh in certain circumstances I do think additives are very worthwhile, but it is a bit of a minefield, like you say. There's a lot of different additives out there, a lot of different companies selling additives. And I think for farmers, it's often difficult to know what's the best type of additive for me, what's going to suit my crop. Um, And they they do vary quite significantly in price as well. Like Donald said, he uses a chemical preservative, um, which is a food grade preservative. Just some of the common types of chemicals in these preservatives would be things like potassium sorbate or sodium benzoate and potassium sorbate is actually a really common one used uh, in yogurt to prefer to uh, extend the shelf life and basically prevent the growth of undesirable molds and yeasts so these types of preservatives are usually quite good on like a very high dry matter crops which are more susceptible to aerobic spoilage at feed out but probably the most common types of additives would be bacterial inoculants so inoculants based on lactobacillus bacteria and these are the types of bacteria Uh, they are naturally present on grass but if we make sure that we're adding very high levels of these bacteria it's really going to help speed up the fermentation so these lactobacillus bacteria will act on the sugars and ferment them to produce lactic acid and lactic acid is the most desirable acid we want during the fermentation it's going to rapidly drop the ph to preserve as much nutrients as possible 
Um, there's also acids which can be used to preserve silage based on propionic or formic acid. And these tend to be more beneficial if the weather conditions are against us and we're going to end up with very wet silage. So they don't rely on, uh, you know, being sugars being present to help the fermentation. So they're going to quickly pickle the grass and again, stop the growth of any yeasts and molds and spoilage organisms. Some additives might also have enzymes included as well. Um, I think these are slightly less uh, common types of additives, but you can get enzymes which are designed to try and basically convert some of the fibre in the grass into sugars, which will help aid the fermentation. And they can also help just improve the digestibility of some of the more stemmy, more mature silages as well. So there's a lot of different products out there and what you use might depend on whether you're targeting quite a high dry matter forage uh, or even haylage. Or like I said, if it does look like the weather conditions aren't great and you're going to end up with wet silage, then acids can be very effective as well. But your bacterial inoculants generally tend to be quite effective over quite a wide range of dry matter. Um, in terms of advice, you know, what should you use? As I say, it very much depends on the type of crop you're making and, and, the, and the target dry matter. But I think what's important as well is if you're looking at different additives, I would always ask the supplier for data on animal performance. Does that additive show benefits in animal performance, whether it's more milk or whether it's more growth on, on your growing animals? Because that's more likely to to give you that return on investment. But yeah, generally I'm a fan of additives. They are proven to work. They will give you a better fermentation, preserve more nutrients with less dry matter and nutritional losses. And you should see a benefit in your livestock performance with them as well. I think they tend to probably be used uh, more uh, on, on the dairy farms and maybe slightly less so by beef and sheep farmers. But I think yeah, generally they are a good, uh, they are certainly a good product to use to to preserve your grass and make help make high quality forage, but they won't turn bad quality forage into good forage. Yeah, yeah. Still got to have the basics right as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, and it sounds like you've got, yeah, and I think having the right additive for your situation is probably key as well. So making sure you have that and it's not just one additive, that's it, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, Can no. I pitch in and say we used to use bacterial inoculants and they, they are very useful, but mm -hmm. they will not tend to halt um, the sort of um, pit face losses that I've described. And one of the great advantages in using a preservative is that a bale, which might be open and sitting exposed to the air in a shed for up to a week, tends to sit there quite inert and not lose any of its quality. So. The shelf life, I think, is how I would describe it. It's very important. Yeah. So are you putting um, are you putting that on your baled haylage as well, Don? Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So a, a haylage bale will typically take about a liter of preservative. Okay. And that's that interesting. Is it all proven to proven to make high quality, consistently good forage year on year? Uh, yeah. And as Lorna says, it's it's not the only ingredient. Everything else has to be right as well. But mm -hmm. we see very little mould in our bales. Uh, that's interesting. It's something I've usually associated just with I uh, pit and forager kind of hard, uh, silage as opposed to bales. So yeah, it's interesting. No. So a I, I, piece of advice I'd give to any farmer is 
get your bale dry matter up and treat it with a preservative. Mm, you will get okay. more material into each bale, and each bale will have a much longer shelf life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important too, I suppose, because often the, the the bales might be the thing which you might roll over a year if you've got excess forage too. Like, so that's yes. uh, yeah, yeah, very useful. Okay, just when we're talking about baled forage and all that leads on well. Um, uh, one of your concerns when you're making um baling forage is, is the plastic use on farm. Um, can you tell us about what wrap you use at Glensock and how you min try to minimise plastic use? So each bale is wrapped with six layers of polythene supplied by the contractor. Um, but my primary concern is that each bale should be well wrapped and therefore protected against um, aerobic spoilage. But I'm also very concerned that we minimize our use of polythene in total. And that's one of the drivers for having as high dry matter as possible. Now, perhaps even gone too far with my dry matter. So I've built and wrapped material that has been up to 65% dry matter. That's fine, perhaps, if you can get it to that level of dry matter quickly. But if you have to ted it three times, then you're, you have to accept also that there will be losses of material in the field. For example, clover leaves, once they dry, they tend to shatter. So you're losing some of the dry matter by in fact, over-processing the crop. So there could be a happy medium here. And I think if I got my bales to 40% dry matter, I would be happy. Can probably achieve that with uh, two tedding operations. Okay. And I suppose that, that kind of leads on. Do you ever make hay or have you ever considered making hay instead and avoid wrapping altogether? So my initial aspiration was to make hay, but that has never been possible in any of the weather windows that I've used to make haylage. Let's say it might have been possible in the dry summer of 2018, but we made excellent quality haylage that year because the material was so dry that it, it really needed no tedding at all, or perhaps only once. So probably the best forage we've ever made. One of the things I'm looking for as a farm manager is consistency. And I, I make consistently good wrapped haylage um, that my stockmen are happy to feed and that the animals are happy to consume. I get no complaints from either. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you could you could push on and try to make hay, but then if you end up having to turn it half to death, then you no, get no, the risks hay. the risks are massive. You, you let's say you need a good week or a week of good weather to make hay. You can get to day five and things are looking quite promising and then on day six a har can come in <laughs> well you could have wrapped the whole job up excuse the pun on day two or day three <laughs> so i'm just not going down that road and uh, as an institute the james hutton institute is very keen that we should minimize or even avoid plastic use on our farms and yet the risks are enormous um so plastic will continue to be one of those ingredients for some time to come. Um, as I say, I, I, I need to make sure each bale is packing a punch and it, it contains as much dry matter as possible. Just another slight lead on from that question. If you could set up the farm logistically that it was easy enough done, would you try and go all pit silage and avoid bales altogether? That's another route away from plastic use, Donald? Or? Okay. 
so as the man who goes out onto the hill to feed the stormbound blackface youth, um, the pit silage is not going to be much use to me out there. And there, the answer is therefore no. But I can get by on 100 bales of haylage in a season, which isn't actually very much compared to the tonnage of pit silage that we use. So I'll continue to have those bales and they're a very useful buffer crop. And incidentally, a well-made haylage bale is also quite a tradable asset. So mm, yeah. that's, true. that's true. If you find you've got more than you need, you can sell them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lorna, I think you've done a bit of uh, research or looked into plastic use when it comes to silage and haylage bales. Would you have any any input on um, how to minimise plastic use? Um, I, I think it's really just making sure that we're we're not making wet bales. We're not, um, you know, filling these bales with a lot of water. We want to try and pack as much dry matter into a bale as possible, and, and thereby reduce the number of bales that we need to make for the number of livestock we've got. I think it's just also important as well that we try and accurately budget, you know, how much forage we do need to make as well. I mean, obviously, you've got to account for it maybe being a slightly longer winter. Um, you know, you're always going to have a wee bit of carryover stock. But I think the key is just to mi- try and minimise plastic by not making wet silage and not making too much, not, you know, making too much either. But there's been a lot of advances in plastic wrap and even the net wrap as well in terms of you know how recyclable uh, these products are and the the clear plastic has certainly got much more demand for it being able to be recycled into a lot of different products as opposed to black plastic so I think that's just something that we need to to take on board as well we do still need to use plastic to make bales we need to put in a certain number of wraps to make sure that we preserve these bales properly but if we can minimize the amount of bales we're making get that target dry matter and also just thinking about how easy is it to recycle the plastic we're using at the end and that's just some of the steps that we can try and make to make sure we're not overusing plastic on farms yeah and of course now with uh, was a couple of years ago the change in the rules and burning burning farm plastic there's a bit more um you know financial pressure on farmers to look for something which doesn't have to be they have to pay to be taken off the farm and is you know recyclable and can be you know passed on uh, as opposed to being a straightforward cost um that focuses the mind in that regard um so talking about making the best quality silos we can lorna how would you you know explain the kind of the quantifiable benefit of making good silage and how that's going to save you money or or increase performance can you tell us a bit about that yeah i think just from a nutritional point of view you know trying to make the best quality silage we can as possible is going to help save financially on purchase feed uh, you know levels of concentrate feeding so for example if we look at uh, having an 11 me silage compared to a 10 me silage um, that is going to have benefits. So, for example, in suckler cows post-calving, they've also got higher energy demands for milk production. So if we fed a 10 me silage to, say, a 600 kilo suckler cow after calving, that's probably sufficient to support about five litres of milk if she's fed that silage ad lib. But if we had an 11 me silage fed ad lib, then that would probably support more like eight litres of milk production. Um, so the difference in terms of concentrate level is probably about a kilo and a half of concentrate that we would need to feed to that 10 me silage, 10, 10 me silage to get the same amount of milk. 
So we are looking at quite a bit of a concentrate saving with higher energy forage. And also the higher the energy, the forage, generally we're assuming it's probably maybe been cut at an earlier stage of maturity. Then generally the protein level is going to be slightly higher as well. And protein is, you know, the expensive part of feed to purchase. It tends to be more expensive than cereals. Um, we're probably looking at a similar concentrate saving for store cattle over the winter. So again, a 10 ME silage, these store animals might need an extra kilo and a half of barley to achieve the same live weight gain as if we were feeding an 11 ME silage. So if you work that up for say 100 animals over a six month winter, you're maybe looking at around about an extra 27 ton of concentrate with a poorer, lower energy forage. So there are big savings to make in concentrate usage over a period of time. And it's the same with use pre-lambing as well. Again, we're probably looking at a difference of about between about four and a half to five kilos of concentrate per ewe over a six week feeding period with a 10 ME silage as opposed to an 11 ME silage. So yeah, there's definitely savings in concentrate and it's been an expensive winter for feed. Um, so yeah, making the best quality forage we can and maximizing protein and energy is gonna be a benefit particularly on our growing stock. Unfortunately, our, our suckler cows, our spring calving suckler cows are not necessarily needing the highest energy silage just to maintain themselves over the winter, but either we can restrict how much they're getting or dilute it down with straw. So again, that will just minimize how much silage they need to eat. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that is a challenge for some suckler suckler cow folk, is if they make good quality silage, which is you know leafy and high energy for you know the first three months of their winter feeding period, it's it's too good. So they're kind of uh, got to find a way of diluting it. Yes, Can I just jump in and say that no producer should ever set out to deliberately make low quality fodder. Um, there is so much energy, human energy, mechanical energy, chemical energy, going into making silage that it is a ridiculous proposition that you should not try to make the best quality fodder possible. If you end up with very high quality fodder, you are creating one of those good sorts of problems. The good problem being that you might need to find another feed to balance it with. And in our case at Glensoch, we've got access to straw quite easily. We, we feed a lot of straw. So we mix silage and straw. And as Lorna says, we, we have minimized the amount of concentrate that we feed to cows and also to our cross use. Um, we're tending to buy protein for the cross use rather than energy. So we're feeding higher protein supplements to cross use. Um, lower volumes of concentrates, but higher protein concentrates because those animals are obtaining most of their energy needs from forage. Yeah, well, that's it too. If you're making really top quality silage, you could almost have a very minimal um, concentrate use at all. I think, I think some people have talked about just feeding a, a, a low level of kind of soya meal when it's cost effective. I think it's very expensive right now, but or, or a similar protein source, and that might be all you need, um, which is a a real saving potentially yeah i think for for use pre-lambing okay. the rule of thumb is if your silage is over 11 me and you've got a minimum of 11 percent protein as long as your ewes are in decent condition you can get away with feeding 100 grams of soya per lamb carried so it eliminates the need for extra cereals or you know buying an expensive compound feeds no not only is it cheaper but if you reduce 
or minimize the amount of concentrate that you're feeding to ruminant livestock, it, it's also better for their digestive systems. So, or conversely, the more concentrate you feed to ruminants, the, the, the more you're giving them a mild dose of acidosis every day. Mm. So keep, keep them regular and keep, them, keep, keep their digestive systems um, in good order. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, I think we're nearing the end of the podcast now. Um, just to round us off, uh, Donald, Lorna, do you want to each give us your, your three top tips for making quality silage? Um, or even forage management, if we could broaden out. I, I don't know. What do you think, Lorna? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three three of my top tips for, for making quality silage. The first one would be just consider when you cut your grass for silage and you know how well headed is it could you potentially cut say a week earlier and that might add about 0.6 of a megajoule to the energy content of your silage okay you might lose a little bit on bulk and yield but if you can really try and help just try and increase the dry matter a wee bit and get a slightly high dry matter forage that might compensate for a slightly lower yield if you cut earlier um, the other thing as well would just be to try and achieve as fast a wilt as possible to try and preserve as much nutritional value in the crop. But this is really going to depend on weather conditions as well and, and the weather forecast. It might actually in some instances be better to cut in the morning after the dew has lifted and pick up the grass later that day as opposed to cut it in the afternoon and leave the grass overnight and pick up the next day. But as I say, weather conditions will, will dictate that. And the third thing I would say is use an additive because they are very well proven to improve fermentation and reduce both dry matter and nutritional losses. Okay, Donald, three top tips. Okay, so Lorna, you've already stolen my thunder as it were. Um, the most important consideration when making silage for me is to manage the weather which of course is completely out with our control but i'll be looking for a weather window for up to two weeks ahead and we do have fantastic weather forecasts these days they're not always right but they usually give us the gist and once i see a weather window coming up i'll start to manage the contractor so that the contractor and his team knows when i'm likely to need him at glensaw and that macro management then becomes micro management as we move into the operation and we make decisions like we will cut that field but please don't come on farm till at least midday cut it in the afternoon and the contractor may not like that but you know we're paying for a service and you know we are prepared to pay for a little bit more perhaps um of a service than some other farms would demand but the upshot of it all is that we get a better product at the end of the day. And I find that by sticking to a recipe, as I call it, I make a very consistent product and a consistently good product. Okay. Uh, thank you, Donald. Thank you, Lorna, for your for your insights there into your into Donald, Donald your system at Glensock and, and Lorna, um, at silage and management in general. So that's um, very informative. And if you'd like any more information on grassland management or silage making, there are a number of te technical notes and other publications are available on the Farm Advisory Service website. <laughs>